Hi, thank you for tuning in to the Finding Harmony podcast with me, your host, Harmony Slater. The following program contains coarse language and content that some listeners may find offensive. Listener discretion is advised. Hi, welcome to the Finding Harmony podcast. I'm really excited you're here today. And as you might notice, my voice is my very sexy podcasting voice. I've come down with some kind of cough that's changing my voice into this very lovely low tone. So you get to listen to that for the intro today. Our guest is someone who really needs no introduction, whether he was someone you feared or revered or wanted to be or looked up to or looked down at, criticized or praised. He's someone who has been, I would say, the center of attention in our yoga community by teachers much older than him and teachers much younger than him for many, many years. Um, And so probably you've guessed by now, but I'm talking about none other than Eddie Stern. And I'm not sure if he would like this intro or not, but this is what he's getting from me. Um, (laughs) He did his first teacher training in 1988 at the Shivananda Yoga Vedanta Center, and he started teaching at the Jiva Mukti Center in 1990 or 1989, something like that. He taught primarily Ashtanga Yoga and I would say was sort of an iconic leader of the Ashtanga Yoga system and method as it had been passed down from Sri K. Patabi Joyce in North America. He, um, in this podcast, talks a little bit about now how he's feeling about his role in our Ashtanga Yoga community, that a role that he held for the last 30 years, and how he's changing his approach to the practice, his approach to teaching, and what he's learned in the last few years. What you'll hear here in this interview or in this conversation, more like conversation between friends, between students and mentor, uh, between people who share a background, a history, and many, many friends in common, is a very emotional conversation, actually, a conversation about the past, a conversation about our future, a conversation about what it is to be in community, what it is to be in a hierarchy, Um, whether these things are helpful or not helpful. And um, I think you're just going to really love this super honest, straight up, straight shooting interview with Eddie. There's no pretense here. And if you know Eddie Stern at all, it's not only going to be raw and honest and also quite funny as he has quite a funny sense of humor. And I'm sure you will enjoy it between him and Russell, there's always some underlying humor involved. So I know you're going to absolutely love this episode. There's so much here to unpack. There's so much here to think about. And I hope that it really enriches your practice and your life and maybe even gives you a few breadcrumbs to follow along your own spiritual path of discovery. So without further ado, here is Eddie Stern. Just for example, the the rectangle that's behind you, the Julian Schnabel. I mean, that that rectangle is an is an it's an artificial boundary 
to the art making, but also the experience of art making. And there's this fantastic tension between trying to explode that boundary and, you know, make maybe the body is the, is the uh, substance for art making or the, um, the, the media for art making, or maybe you use television or maybe you do street performance. But 98% of the time, the thing that's easiest to buy and sell was the direct, was the rectangle. And still today, the art fairs are filled up with rectangles that are easily bought and sold. Whereas the experience of art is something that's, that's ineffable, that's happening all the time. So we talk about this with yoga as well. Like we have this ineffable experience of yoga that's happening continuously, but we have this thing that we have to buy and sell. Yeah. Yeah, and that thing that's being bought and sold is largely rectangle, like a yoga mat. <laughs> it's true. It's a, it's a rectangle. It's a long rectangle. Or the Instagram or the Zoom box is another rectangle that's bought and sold. Yeah. Although I prefer the square format. <laughs> how, many, how many square yoga mats do you have? Yeah, that, see, that's the thing. I don't have a single square yoga mat. But <laughs> if it was... Um, like long enough, like a six foot by six foot square yoga mat, that would be um, really fun to practice on, especially exactly. if it was made out of a sustainable material and, you know, <laughs> and all that and not made of petrochemicals. Um, but um, I guess in the, you know, in the marketplace, that would take up a lot of real estate in an actual yoga studio. So yeah. nobody is going to want to, allow there to be someone on a six by six foot mat. You're like, no, I'm going to four people in my room if you do that. Sure. I, I limit you to a rectangle. I can squeeze a lot more of you suckers in here. Yeah. yeah. It's very disruptive. Yeah. And disruptive not to have mats either. Like you're just like, what do I, what do, I do with people? I've said this to, to people before. I feel like um, you would probably know the answer to this better than I would is um, – why do we always go to the right in our standing postures? And I think that's because it's easier to keep track of the students. It's easier to, easier to know where they are. If they're all going to the right. I am, um, you know, uh, I don't know, but this is something that you see only in a couple of styles of yoga, not in all of them. Um, so whatever the reasons are, I don't know, but I stopped going only to the right. Um, and now you go now you go both ways. <laughs> I, I have to close my mouth uh, and no one can see that at home. I like <laughs> literal mouth mouth drop open. <laughs> wow. That's I'm I'm uh, you're uh, fucking done, man. <laughs> I think we should end the interview actually. This is like that's one step too far. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's fun, like um, jumping to the right and doing, um, say, Trikonasana and then Samastitihi and then um, jump to the left and um, do Parashva Trikonasana. <laughs> yeah, the, the Trikonasana B, not Trikonasana doesn't yeah. exist. Jump to the left and do Trikonasana B. It's really fun. And it does interesting things to your brain also. So sometimes I might... Sometimes I might jump to the right and do Trikonasana and Parashvakonasana, and then I'll jump to the left 
and I'll do the twisted versions of each of those. Um, and I'm just curious, like what kind of an effect it's going to have on my brain. It's not going to do anything bad to your internal organs. I'm sorry. And it's not going to do anything bad to you. Well, that, that's subjective, I guess, or objective, whether it does something detrimental to your levels of consciousness. I, I'm, I don't think that it will. Um, but um, in the Hindu tradition, there's a, you know, they have reasons for doing things towards the right and reasons for doing things towards the left. Certain ceremonies that are related to um, death rituals, for example, will pour oblations towards the left. Um, and certain that are left-handed path um, or no just if it's you're doing a death ceremony for a departed one for example okay okay um, and um and then rituals that are generative type things so or or for worshiping the devas those will be things that you know you're pouring oblations to the right or using your right hand always so um there are lots and lots and lots of different reasons for it uh, and so i think that it's it's probable that Krishnamacharya and, and his students who followed in his footsteps would continue with this stepping to the right or, or doing the right side first and things like that. Um, so, um, but again, you know, we, we'd have to ask some different authorities to work on that. Do you really feel that um, doing, say, Padmasana uh, with the left leg first uh, would would interrupt the flow of energy to whatever fucking organs are down there. Um, well, I know what organs are down there. <laughs> <laughs> they are sometimes used for the things that you just um, suggested, and um, the uh, and other activities as well. Um, the you know the right <laughs> side left side was related um, to uh, apparently liver and spleen, right, and. Um, and that's going to be like, for example, if you're bending forward in, in Buddha Padmasana, your spleen is in a slightly different position in the ribcage than your liver is, so your heels will stimulate towards those organs. Um, sitting up straight, they're not pressing against the liver and spleen, of course. Right. Um, and uh, so I spend time now each day s sitting in both position with the right leg and the left leg. Mm -hmm. And... Um, and um, you know, you find things in Taoism, for example, where there are male energies and female energies um, and um, or like in yoga, sun and moon, hot, cold and all that. And so if you are a man, you might sit with your um, right leg below and your left leg on top to ground the um, the rising um, fire energy underneath the cooling water or moon energy, mm -hmm. which opposite leg and if you're a woman you might cross them the other way wow. um, and also with hand positions as well so if the right side is the the, the fiery active side um, and the left side is the cooling um, moon side or watery side then a woman might keep the fire on top and the water below and a man might keep the fire below and the water on top mm -hmm. um, wow so you do find that in Taoism and in different um other, you know, Chinese and Japanese practices. And I think in, in yoga, there are probably some of those similar things too. And uh, also, in, for example, if you look in the iconography, you'll see that um, the Buddhists largely sit with the left leg like first. Yeah. And in, every once in a while, you'll see pictures of Shiva sitting with his left leg first in Padmasana too. Mm -hmm. I had wondered if that might be 
because in that situation, and, and honestly, I've never actually heard this uh, described, but I've I've pretended that I was an expert on the subject and said this, um, which I apologize. Um, but I've thought that the Buddha, <laughs> I thought that, the, that perhaps the Buddha is there as a as a mirror, and we're there to mirror the shape of that of that personage. And so we would end up putting our right leg on for on top first as we're looking and mirroring the Buddha in front of us, because that person is is not is less a god than they are a, like a model of behavior. Um, perhaps I really don't know. Um, there's a couple of things where um, not within the Buddhist iconography, but for example, if you look at a picture of Shiva that um the um, even if his left leg is first and you think, oh, well, maybe this is a mirror type situation. If his right hand is coming up in the have no fear mudra, right. yes. or something else, then you'll know that what we're seeing is actually right side, left side reflected. In Ganesha also, like if you see a, a, a Ganesha with a right handed trunk, it has particular meaning. A left handed trunk has a particular meaning. So those are not going to be mirror images either. They're going to be what you see is what you get. Yeah. Um, and for, so for the Buddhists, I'm not too sure. I really don't know. But I'm going to guess that, you know, because one of the tenets of um, the Buddha's teachings is that you have to discover these things for yourself. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, I'm, you know, if, I'm not the one to emulate your own journey is the thing that you need to have your self-discovery through. He probably wouldn't have encouraged anyone through his teachings in later years to say, here is the model you must follow. And um, cause that would then deify the person right. of the, rather than you hear the steps that you follow that you will find your own freedom from. Um, but don't, you know, um, don't believe what I say, but test it. Yeah. And that's what the Buddha said, right? Yeah. So he wouldn't say mirror everything I do, because maybe you're supposed to be a householder um, <laughs> or something like that. Yeah. Um, I always anyway, thought it was like a... Um, uh, I'm speculating as much as we're all speculating about it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I always thought that it was sort of the Buddhist, um, like as a... Um, you know, revolt or a sort of revolution against the Vedic culture, right? That it was something different. And so oh, they that's what we do at the, the opposite. Yeah. yeah. Oh, so it's like, hey, all you cats are sitting with your right leg, man. I don't roll like that. Put right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You never know. Never know. Yeah. <laughs> I, like, I like that as well, you know. Yeah. It's, a, it's a punk ideal. Yeah, because it was like kind of it was sort of against the the Vedic traditions of the time. So. Yeah, you could say, well, you know, no, we're anarchists, so we do our left leg first. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I guess the yogis, you know, the yogis were somewhat going against the grain of the um, mm-hmm. the culture as well by running off to the forest and doing their practices too. Mm-hmm. Um, so I have no idea. Mm-hmm. But it's a nice supposition, and all suppositions are fun too. <laughs> were you in the room when um, we were talking about this before before we we got on the the call? But were you in the room when um, <laughs> uh, um, revolving um, Parjwal Kanasana 
when when that was introduced to the lead sequence? Uh, yes, I was. So something about that is really, really interesting. And I think in kind of pertinent to our conversation that um, there is this uh, parampara where, you know, um, supposedly the sequence is passed down to us, but actually I, I made the whole thing up. <laughs> and then my students who I'm in control of, who I, who I hold, you know, they're, they're doing what I tell them to. The students keep doing it. They keep doing reverse Parjwokanasana. And then one day I just say, okay, fuck it. I'm going to put reverse Parjwokanasana in it. And, and it's some, in some way that up, upends the whole power structure. If you're allowing your students you know, to do the splits and the standing sequence, and you're allowing them to introduce reverse uh, side angle pose, then who's actually in charge? Yeah, um, uh, I guess you're going to get a lot of I don't knows from me today. <laughs> so let's just like look at the the larger picture of um, of listening, which I'm have noticed, prop you know pops up all throughout the Hindu tradition and through the yogic texts that largely teachings were oral for a very long time until things started getting written down. Mm -hmm. And then when things started getting written down for some bizarre reason, people started trusting books more than they trusted the word of the teacher. Mm -hmm. And if any teacher is um, giving an instruction to a student who has willingly come forward to them, but the student doesn't follow along with what they're saying. In you know, and you know this as a as a teacher, both of you as teachers, that um that can become a frustrating experience <laughs> because all of these sequences are. It's not that they're arbitrary. You know, they all kind of work within their own schematic. Mm -hmm. And there are many, many, many different ways of doing yoga asanas. And a lot of the ways are good. Not all of them. A lot of them are really good. But what you want to have happen is that someone is coming to you not because you're teaching them particular asanas that are magical in some way, but that the person wants to discipline themselves or they want to know themselves or they want to know where is meaning and purpose in my life? How, who am I? What am I doing here? How can I understand my own consciousness? And one of the ways of beginning that journey is to stop listening to the dictates of an unsteady mind like our own mm -hmm. and then listen to maybe a slightly steadier mind and see if I follow what they say, my mind also might become steadier and I'll learn something about myself. Mm -hmm. So part of that process is shutting up, listening and doing what the practice dictates. Right. And if you do that, then you learn something. You realize, you know, it could be anything that this person taught me, but the, the choice that I made was to listen, to not, you know, um, think that I knew better and uh, in that listening and not thinking that I knew better already, there was a, some natural 
you know, maybe gentle humility or openness or receptivity. Um, but if someone comes and they already know better and they're like, well, no, I want to do this anyway, you know, okay, fine. But why are you here? Yeah. <laughs> if you just want to do whatever you want to do anyway, that's great. But you don't need to be here and I don't need to be wasting my time mm -hmm. right. um, with any teaching whatsoever. Cause you already know what to do. Yeah. Fabulous. I applaud you. Be happy. <laughs> you know? And uh, so you find yourself sometimes in situations where there are teachers teaching and the students think for whatever reasons that they know better and uh, they just do what they want. And then they convince other people to do those same things. Maybe <laughs> the teacher just gives up. Fine. If you want to do that? Fine. You know, yeah. your loss. I don't care. I mean, it's your loss. So yeah. just stepping back and not looking at any specific things like this is a generalized thing that happens in teaching and with students. Mm -hmm. So I heard once that, um, Patabi Joy said, <laughs> you, I don't know, maybe you heard him say this, maybe not. Maybe this is a, a fantasy or something I made up. <laughs> said, uh, telling once, telling twice, third time, God telling. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I, I've heard him say that, uh, honestly, I don't, really feel like talking about him all that much mm -hmm. um, and um i don't really talk about him all that much at all anymore yeah um so um there were um you know uh, so yeah he he said a lot of things and um and, and he also did a lot of things that were um really harmful to people and painful to people and had long lasting effects mm. Um, individuals and on different communities as well. So, um, you know, it, it, it doesn't make me feel good to, mm. um, to give any sort of, um, energy to, to the things that, that he said or didn't say, or, hmm. um, just, I'm, no longer want to engage in his world. Mm. Thank you for saying that. Yeah. To to your point, um, one of the, the things that we also that we talked about, we were really excited about the interview today. And uh, one of the other things that we talked about is the is something that Spiro mentioned to us when he came on the the podcast, which was that we're we're living in a post guru community, engaging in a post guru community, and maybe so. So many of us are used to uh, giving up our authority to someone else. And now symptomatic to our community is a whole, is thousands of people casting around trying to figure out what to do and who to give it to or how to take it for themselves. <laughs> and I wondered if that, if that, um, resonated with you and i feel like your last in your last statement it, it, it might well i think that was a very apt thing and very um astute observation um i love spiros we've been friends for a long time and um he's a he's a really thoughtful person um yeah um i um can't speak for like a community mm -hmm. um, at, at large. Um, uh, 
I can only really speak for myself and, you know, what, what I've, um, the decisions I've made based on, um, everything that's transpired. And, um, you know, for a lot of us, we were on a spiritual search or a spiritual quest before we went to Mysore. And then we had some time there learning. And then maybe we dispersed to different areas and our spiritual quest continues. Mm-hmm. And there were painful learnings from the experience of being there and especially the experiences after, especially after his death. Mm-hmm. Um, when all the, you know, the very public discussion and the necessarily public discussion of the sexual abuses mm-hmm. um, uh, could be spoken about in a way where we could start to come to terms with the um, mistakes many of us made and um, the um, abuses that occurred, etc. Um. And there was too much betrayal in that world for me. Mm -hmm. Um, There was too much uh, shame that I had towards myself for um, not speaking out in times when I should have because of fear Mm -hmm. and the lack of strength. And um, that... And in a feeling that the current model, which is, you know, being displayed in Mysore, hasn't really learned much from everything that transpired. And there's a lot of repetition of behaviors, not sexual abuse, but other types of behaviors, which play into the same types of situations that allowed Patabi Joyce to do what he did. Mm -hmm. Um, and I just don't want to participate in that. I'm, you know, um, and uh, so I'm figuring out what that means for me in regards to what I practice, to how I teach, um, how I, you know, respectfully do my own thing, mm-hmm. um, and where I look to um, traditional teachings to draw from that, um, you know, some not just making stuff up because I think I can make stuff up and, oh, yeah, I can just do whatever I want because I don't believe that. But um, what, um, you know, what does that look like? And so that's a work in progress. But feel, you know, better inside myself for going, okay, these are the things that I wish I had done better. These are the ways I wished I'd been a stronger person. These are the things that I'm, you know, truly sorry for. And, um, and, um, and these are the things that I didn't listen to. Like, you know, there were red flags that I didn't listen to that I wish that I had. Um, so then we go back to the whole listening thing. Like, you Mm -hmm. know, like, are you listening to the things that that are popping up inside of you? And um, if you're not listening to them, Mm. but you're just doing something else, like that's not the spiritual path. You know, you have to listen 
to when a red flag comes up. You have to lift, listen if your consciousness, if your conscience says to you, that's not right, you know. Um, and there were instances where I didn't listen. And so I, um, I want to be better than, than I was. And I, I feel like the, the mentality of the community at the time uh, in my sort supported me in not being a better person. Mm-hmm. Um, and so wow. I, you know, wonder why I, I stayed, you know, yes. what was it that, you know, what was it in me that, that I, what did I think I was going to get? What did I think I was going to gain? How did I think I was going to be important <laughs> um, from having a position in that hierarchy? Yeah. And I did think I was going to gain something. I did think I was going to have positions. So, um, but yeah, it, it, it supported, um, not listening. Uh, and I mean, you know, and I don't, I'm not blaming people or individuals. I'm, this only falls on my shoulders. We all, um, uh, are, you know, have to accept responsibility for how we participate in any community. Um, but there are, are ways that communities um, encourage certain types of mentalities. And that was, the, you know, the, one, of, one of the mentalities of this one. A lot of magical thinking, um, mm-hmm. a lot of um, uh, avoiding issues. Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember when I first, um, anyway, I, I don't need to go back into my first impressions and stuff like that. But that's where, my, that's where I first started not listening. It's interesting because there's it's it's a little bit of a complicated issue when you know we come into a community and we have sort of a a bit of a group think that happens right and we're all sort of influencing each other and creating and especially social mores yeah and, and creating stories and all and also as a spiritual seeker you want to have a spiritual experience um you know and so that kind of feeds into the whole um you know act of creating a certain kind of of story and experience and what's going on and then on top of it you're sort of like you say you're you feel inadequate or like you want to learn you want to be open you want to um, listen you want to do what you're told and and so then that also kind of feeds into not really like listening to your own intuitions or your own voice inner sort of nudgings at times. And then it just kind of all works together in sort of a perfect storm, I think. Um, So that when we have these systems of hierarchy, right, it's, it, it often leads to, you know, difficult, um, I guess, ends, because it's really hard to find that that inner voice or that inner strength and say, you know, something's not right here. It takes it takes a lot of courage and a lot of confidence even in your own um, intuition, I guess, or your own feeling. Yeah, I don't mind hierarchies um, so much. Like, you know, I, I, I like to have teachers and I like to know that I'm there to learn from them, you know, mm-hmm. to teach them. Learn. And so I don't mind hier- hierarchies. Um, but it seems like, you know, for example – if there's just a couple people there sitting, talking and learning and stuff, it's fine. 
But then as those numbers grow, um, then all sorts of human emotions start to pop up and, um, and, you know, little traumas or uh, whatever it might be start, you know, creeping into the behavior of everyone. And then mm-hmm. there's competition or there's jockeying and there's all this stuff. So, yeah. you know, maybe just as numbers magnify, it becomes uh, natural for the faults in the imperfections. Let's just say the stuff that we haven't quite sorted out to start um, coming out uh, in unconscious ways mm-hmm. that then creates dynamics that allow for a lot of other bad stuff to happen. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know, and I don't want to, you know, I, I don't know, but there's, um, there's something to be said for learning things from teachers and not having to be in big, there's something to be said for spiritual growth that can occur that doesn't depend on communities. Mm-hmm. Uh, not that communities are bad. Like we like to, we like to have friends. We like to have people around us. But you know, I sometimes I wonder about all this need for spiritual community. Like, <laughs> what do you need so many people? You don't. Just be like a human being, and like, let's try to be nice people and do the right thing. Yeah. And then we don't have to worry about these communities, which are always problematic. Um, but I was so um, eager to be known as like the the <laughs> nicest person, you know. The nicest person. But I'm much, but I'm much nicer than so. these other schlubs in the room. <laughs> you know, and that's why you have your own podcast. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah. You know, so uh, it's, I don't know. Yeah, it's interesting because uh, we were kind of talking about that too, like even like the hierarchy and how you need, you know, in order to learn something, in order to really you know become proficient at something you need some kind of structure where there's a teacher teaching and you can't just have it be sort of this completely sort of like well what do you want to do today (laughs) what do you feel like right this completely open kind of syllabus yeah syllabus (laughs) but at the same time you know there needs to be a little bit more of a conversation where students have um, a voice and feel like they have a voice in what they're doing, I think. Yeah, I guess it depends on um, um, what the topic is, which is being taught. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you're going to someone and you're going to learn a very specific thing, uh, I want to learn fine art calligraphy. Yeah. This is how it's done. Yeah. Right. You, know, you don't have a voice. <laughs> this is a form. Yeah. And this is how it's done. And then there are other things which are going to be like not skill oriented, but growth oriented, where then, um, yes, the voice of the student is going to matter. Is this helping you grow? You know, mm-hmm. is, how is this making you feel? All those types of things. Well, so I guess it depends. I, I agree with you. And I also think it depends on the, um, the thing which is being taught. I love that point because it, it, it kind of points out sort of this interesting problem with the asana and the the way that maybe it was approached or we approached it as students um in a sense like we wanted it to be uh something that was helping us grow spiritually (laughs) but we kind of approached it like as something to perfect um 
in that like, you know, I want the perfect Trikonasana or, or handstand or scorpion and and get attention for that thing. Right. And then also in the room, you know, the the more beautiful and more advanced your postures were, of course, the more sort of, um, you know, up on the pedestal you get to go. And we were talking about social media a little bit before this. And social media kind of does that too, right? It puts it up there sort of like with fine art or, or ballet or <laughs> calligraphy or some shape to emulate rather than a tool for like, is this helping you grow? And, and having that sort of process-oriented or growth-oriented goal more than like a... Uh, project kind of goal or like a performance goal. When I was at um, Shivananda in the 1980s, everything was this integral yoga approach. You did some karma, you did some jnana, you did bhakti, you did raja, and you did all of it. And seva was very important. And so we did asanas and pranayama twice a day, and we did chanting twice a day and meditation twice a day. And, um, you know, clean the ashram and, and stuff like that. And you felt like this is the spiritual lifestyle uh, that I will be living, you know. And, um, and then even when I'm back home, I'll try to incorporate whatever I can. So I'm bringing all these aspects into a balanced approach to a spiritual quest. Mm -hmm. And um, so I was in my early 20s when I started and my body was very supple and I could do the poses. And um, From the skateboarding? From skateboarding, from slam dancing, from, you know, <laughs> diving off stages, from, you know, from whatever, being loose and not caring. <laughs> um, and there, in that setting, you know, there there wasn't really um, a feeling of glory or specialness from doing a hard pose. It was more like, this is such an interesting way to experience my body. Right. And it was a curiosity of um, what are, you know, what can I, what shape can I do? What can, what will happen if I try this, you know, and feelings of like inner accomplishment. The first time that you did something, and you felt your body and your mind and your nervous system and your breath all like fall into place. And um, that inner experience was the experience that I was looking for in, um, in, in the practices, mm -hmm. you know? So, and, you know, not to beat on Mysore and what happened there, but there was, there was a shift that occurred that when I, started doing the Ashtanga yoga series. Um, my first experience of them was very much so like, this is a really interesting way to experience my body. And, you know, and, and I could do most of the poses fairly quickly, um, at least for the first two and a half series. And, um, and, um, but then, um, some it was not a lot of people, but some people you know who were in my store. But some of them started coming up to me, going, "Oh, wow! I heard about your back bend, and you can do this stuff." Right. Like and I'd never had anyone say that to me before. Yeah. And I didn't know how to respond to you know to that kind of a statement. But those sort of statements started coming up more and more and more. Mm. Um, and all of a sudden, 
there was this little shift that came um, towards like, oh, have you finished intermediate yet? Or you, why would you even ask that question? Yeah. I, never, I never entertained that kind of thinking about asanas before. But then I started soaking that up also. Sure. And I got into it, you know. And so this was, I, I had a couple of experiences where I felt like a fall from grace in the, in the practice of asanas. And the first was the first time someone gave me a push in a forward bend and my head went down to my knees um, where it hadn't been there before. And I thought, oh, I want them to do that every time. Mm. So, I can, you know, be further in the pose every time. And that was my first fall from grace. And then the second time I felt that within the asana practice was when this started occurring in my sort, when I started giving in to this group think of, oh, achievement, finish the series. Yeah. Um, um, uh, and that was like, that was really funny. I mean, um, so I don't know. I, there's more, there's more like little things like that, 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 that occurred. Um, but it was sort of like, oh, now all of a sudden I'm thinking about my body in a different way. I want to get something. I yeah. want to gain something. And I think that fed into a lot of different um, uh, peripheral um, quests. Absolutely. I've, I, I couldn't agree more. That was entirely my experience of like being interested in how my body was moving and how I, how I felt and how I was interested in like in um, experiencing joy finally. And then, Oh, I could, I could get good at this and I could really compete. And that trans <laughs> and that happened once I got to Mysore. Yeah. And I think that, and I don't know uh, about you, but I think that for me, that thing it was innate in me already sure. to think like that. And I allowed, you know, and then I put myself in a situation or found myself in a situation that exacerbated that tendency. And um, so, but then it was a tendency that I was stuck in for a couple of decades. Yeah. Because <laughs> the community encouraged it. So then it's up to me to find the strength to not give into that tendency. Now that's not going to be everyone's experience. Of course, some people have, wonderful experiences on a daily basis. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, I think that's great, but other people, you know, they don't. And, and then what happens if you are one of those people and then you become a teacher and then you start encouraging other people to practice like that too? Not so good. Mm -hmm. so, um, I really have, uh, you know, spent time over the past years, really, really, really trying to um, change the way that I teach, the reason why I teach, and what it is that I want to convey. And for a long time, I, I tried to just convey the status quo because I thought that's what I had to do in order to remain within the realm, you know? Mm -hmm. And um, so, and that was a fear-based approach to teaching, not a, not a compassionate way to teach. Yeah. Uh, not that I was uncompassionate, but that I thought, no, the, you know, the sequences are gold standard. You have to, you have to move towards that. Mm -hmm. and they're not a gold standard. They're just one idea mm -hmm. an malleable idea. Uh, and, and at times an imperfect idea. How has your, your way of teaching shifted then? I'm so curious. 
Because, okay, like maybe I think most people know who you are, but. <laughs> I, can, I have an introduction <laughs> ready. You, you do? Okay, read your introduction. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> Oh, yeah, save the introduction for the end. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, let's do that. <laughs> but, you know, start the podcast like in the middle of a sentence like we did. Yeah, we, we will. Like, the theme song and all of a sudden we're talking. Yeah. And then, It'll be very end. So here's the introduction. Decide whether or not you think it's true. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You've heard. Yeah, we will do that <laughs> From what sure. you heard, this is who an Eastern was or is. Let us know. <laughs> but, I mean, you were very... You know, when I was coming up, you were sort of, um, I'm going to say like a, like a Ashtanga yoga god or idol or like, um, I don't know, icon, uh, rock star. <laughs> There's all kinds of, you know, you had a huge school in, in Manhattan. You were sort of the head of, of the New York, um, you know, real, real Ashtanga yoga practitioners. If you wanted Willem Dafoe to see your script that you had written on spec, you'd go to Eddie's you class. you start taking Ashtanga yoga with Eddie Stern. <laughs> um, and that's sort of, I think, I mean, you know, my experience of practicing with you was never um, like, you know, it, you weren't like a, a mean teacher or like really enforcing a lot of things. You were very gentle in your assists. You know, it was a very nice environment, you know, but still there was like a, a strictness that you felt in anticipation of, of going to your class, right? As a student, you'd feel like, oh, I really want to. But, but actually had a nice vibe. Yeah, I had a nice <laughs> vibe. <laughs> but you felt like, oh, his last name's Stern. That's scary. You know, it's going to be a really strict. Uh, yeah, be careful. I got to be per perfect in my asanas or whatever, right? You wanted to show up and like really perform. Um, but, you know, how would you say that kind of like as a student, sort of what what should I expect now from you? <laughs> what would I what coming to your class? What 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 is the expectation? What how is you're your, gonna make your own expectations though teaching. and then show up and find your own experience. <laughs> like, but you know, what if I can't do all the asanas or what if, you know, what if I'm kind of like modifying a lot of things or, you know, I don't know. Just tell us more about how you're can How I your do approach the, has changed. Can I do the splits in the standing sequence now? Can I do that? <laughs> you don't. You don't even have to um, worry about that anymore. <laughs> you highly encourage. You can do the splits and the sun salutations if you want. Excellent. <laughs> I want to see if I can make that T come out of his nose. If, <laughs> instead of stepping forward into Virabhadrasana Bhadrasana and Surya Namaskar B, you can just step forward into Hanuman Good God. Back into Chaturanga. Mm. I mean. Um, the um, I, uh, you know, anatomy is important because things need to fit together in a way that makes sense for your body mm -hmm. and doesn't hurt you. And um, so, if your anatomy doesn't allow you to do a thing in a particular way, maybe it will allow you to do something in another way. Mm -hmm. And so, um, I do a lot more of that now. Mm -hmm. And if someone has um a lot of endurance and a lot of energy, but maybe their body doesn't fold in certain ways. Um, I don't see much problem with them doing more than they might have done with me 20 years ago. And, but if you can't do a half Lotus, it's okay. You can put your foot under your thigh. Um, 
I think one of the things which is important is our energy levels measured by our breath. And if you see that someone is forcing a lot, then it's time to slow down or stop. If you see that someone is getting out of breath, it's time to slow down or stop. If someone's getting tired, slow down or stop. Mm -hmm. Um, But if you're not getting tired and your breathing is really good, but your body's just a little stiff, it's okay for you, I think, to do a little bit more than, you know, if you can't, for example, do Lotus and you have to stop or say, for example, you can't do half Lotus and um, you have to stop at Ardhubhada Padma Paschimottanasana. And then, you know, you're stuck there for seven years. That might not necessarily, which happens to people, that yeah. might not necessarily be the best thing for your body. If there are other things that are going to help move energy, move breath, move blood circulation. Mm-hmm. And so now I just, um, uh, I am discerning about postures and about how people do them in a different way, looking at a larger picture. And, and, you know, at Shivananda, no matter what you could do or couldn't do, you did all the 12 basic poses. You went forward, you went backward, you twisted, Mm -hmm. you went upside down and you did something standing and you balanced. Mm -hmm. And overall, this is good for the nervous system. Um, It's good to move a little bit in all the directions. And if you are stuck moving only in one direction for a long time, then over time that might not be great for your overall human development. Mm -hmm. So I like to have people moving in more directions Mm -hmm. um, uh, earlier on. Mm -hmm. And I really just look at um, best I can energy levels, breathing capacity and things like that. So I don't know if the how the experience would be the same or different. It might be exactly the same, but the flexibility I allow myself for teaching is a, is a lot um, more later now. Mm-hmm. And also um, I made a decision um, in January before the pandemic to stop teaching my sore classes that I didn't want to do that anymore. Mm-hmm. And um So now what I'm doing is uh, I'm teaching something that I call the self-paced practice just because I couldn't come up with a better name. Maybe you'll have a better name for me. And it's basically the same setting as a Mysore format. Mm -hmm. Um, But people are doing different types of sequences as well. So people who want to do their Ashtanga yoga sequences, they can if they need to adapt them in certain ways because of age or body stuff then we can do that. And if someone comes in with back pain and I'm going to show them sequences for that, or they just want to do pranayama and that's all they can do then. So all those things will kind of happen in the setting. And I mean, uh, again, the first couple of years I was in Mysore, I never heard the word of Mysore style practice. Like it was just yoga practice. I didn't hear that until I went to California and that's what Chuck and Mati were teaching at Yoga Works. And I thought to myself, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> is a the name of a city. It's not the style of a yoga. And, I'm, and you know, but somehow no other name came up. <laughs> that. And now it's like, oh, do you practice my sort? Like, come on, that's, you know. It, it, <laughs> so it, it certainly was never called that in my sort. Because um, uh, you were in my sort. Exactly. <laughs> So it was just yoga practice, you know, but there was never a better name for it. Um, And and I don't, and, and so, but, and since I don't teach the straight Ashtanga yoga sequences anymore, and since 
I, you know, I, I study other things and I practice other things too. And I like to teach those things. I'm certainly not going to use the name, which is associated with a very structured way of teaching particular sequences. Mm -hmm. Um, I'll still teach those sequences. I think they're valuable, but I'll teach other sequences too. And in this self-practice setting, you might see a lot of different things happening. One of the nice things about that is that, um, people, um, I think, and I hope have a better, um, atmosphere for just being able to do what they need to do and what they want to work on rather than what the group dynamic is driving forward as achievement in practice. Mm. So now it's like, here's this thing. It doesn't work for me. Okay. Let's figure out something that does work for you. Now you're happy because you feel better. Great. And then you want to continue, you know, doing this, whatever the things are you doing in this new way for you. Mm. Um, And I enjoy doing things in different ways uh, as well. So for example, um, Right now, uh, am I, is this too long an answer? Can no, I, keep going. Yeah. yeah. So, um, right now, I'm um, in a, a master's program with Esviasa, which is a Swami Vivekananda Yoga University from Bangalore. And it's a master's in yoga research and ancient texts, ancient yoga texts. Uh, there's, they have a branch in California, which is just open called the Vivekananda Yoga University. So it's like the U.S. offshoot um, of Esviasa, but all of the teachers are in India. So, um, you know, I have Zoom classes with them um, two days a week, and then the rest is online study. And in one of their protocols, um, which is one of their general health yoga protocols, they have a very interesting thing where they do Sarvangasana. Um, for about three minutes. And then after that, you come down and you do Matsyasana for about a minute or so. Mm -hmm. And then you go back and do Halasana Mm -hmm. for a couple of minutes. And then you come down and either do another Matsyasana or Urdhva Dhanurasana. And so I started doing um, this, you know, pose, counter pose Mm -hmm. of those four with Sarvangasana, Matsyasana, yeah. Halasana, Uttana Padasana. Mm. And I'll tell you, it feels great. <laughs> I'm going to try it. <laughs> I really like it. And so um, uh, for, you know, for people who maybe they can't be on their necks too long or shouldn't be on their necks or their shoulders for too long, mm-hmm. or they constantly get neck pain from doing shoulder stand, even if they're propped up or whatever, I found that in a, in a few instances so far that I've started teaching this to people, um, that they feel better in their necks mm-hmm. and they feel better overall in their spine because um, they have a little break, you know, from not doing too much in the same direction all at the same time. Yeah. So this is an example of where, you know, maybe someone can do all the nine finishing poses of Ashtanga yoga in a row with no problem, but what happens if it is a problem for you? Mm-hmm. Um, what are your options? Mm-hmm. So um, I think that one of the flaws in the sequences of Ashtanga yoga is, and, and one of the flaws mainly not of the sequences, but the teaching methodology is there's not a lot of room for changing things when something doesn't work for you. Mm-hmm. And you might have a very good reason why something doesn't work for you. I might have been in a car crash. Yeah, I might have been born with, with a fused spine. Mm-hmm. Um, I might have been born with one leg three inches shorter than the other. Mm-hmm. I might, it could be anything. Mm-hmm. And so 
with that lack of flexibility comes a rigidity in teaching methodology and of ideology in regards to, to the overall, um, you know, teaching method and method of practice. And, um, so yeah, I was, you know, I was very much in that because of course I thought that's how I would have my place in the hierarchy, which you already noted. I seem to have had that. (laughs) One of the problems with that was that, um, you know, I started believing that also. And in other ways, I became not a very nice person because I thought that my voice mattered and I was important Mm -hmm. and, you know, that I should have um, pride of place and things. Russell experienced this very firsthand when he was, um, if I can speak personally for a moment, um, leading the way with all of the um, um, things with choice yoga that were in regards to public education and policy and things like that. And, um, and he was doing a great job of it and knew a lot more than I did. But because I had been, you know, doing bent on learning and involved this, I thought that I had the way and, you know, and I was, uh, I pushed myself into an arena where I wasn't invited to be. And, um, and then, you know, made myself uh, an essential character in that and it caused a lot of pain like to russell and to other people and to them and um and was you know i don't like to use the word ego a lot in regards to yoga but not in regards to yoga it was very like ego driven and um and and i was that kind of a person and i was exacerbating that because of this whole group dynamic that i wanted to be important in and um, so, you know, and uh, and certainly later, I apologize to Russell for that. And I continue to do so today. Um, and um, but that wasn't nice behavior. That wasn't good. You know, that wasn't friendly. Yeah. That wasn't friendship, you know. Mm-hmm. And so um, and there were there are lots of ways that I became that kind of a person. Mm-hmm. And um, so. So, and that's just a fact. And then, um, and then hopefully like in the future, um, and I, and I can catch myself now when I, when I, when I begin to become that, um, again, and the, in the days when I feel that, um, maybe an opportunity is given to someone else or, uh, a position is given to someone else. And I notice, Oh, I'm, I don't feel offended or slighted or insulted or hurt or left behind by that. I think, ah, that's great. Maybe I'm growing just a little bit, you know? Mm-hmm. And so, and I look for those small moments when, um, when I don't need to be important in any group situation. Wow. And um, so that is, if I look to what does spiritual growth mean for me? Um, that's one of the things that it means to me right now. Like, cause I spent so many years, needing to be important mm-hmm. in um in a in certain group dynamics or in organizations you know mm-hmm. i needed to be important for whatever reasons doesn't matter um and so now i look for the times when i don't need to be that where i can just you know be on a spiritual quest again mm-hmm. you know like i was when i was a youth <laughs> and, and enjoy the curiosity uh, and the excitement of, you know, learning new things and sharing things and, uh, you know, 
because it's easy to come up. I, you know, I'm a, I'm a really opinionated person. And um, so I am, um, and it's okay to share opinions and be opinionated as long as you don't inflict your opinions on other people and demand that they agree with you. Otherwise, you know, you can just share them because it's fun to talk. That's it. Mm-hmm. Not because our opinions matter for anything in the grand scheme of things other than how well we get along with each other. Mm-hmm. So when it comes to the guru shisha thing and the whole parampara thing, I think that in definitely in America, the guru tradition has caused more harm than probably good because of misunderstandings of culture and the over respect that we pay to people that gives them power and license to do bad things to people. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, in the conversation with Raghu today that we were having with Lisa Nienz, Raghu was talking about like what happens when you're too respectful, you overdo, mm-hmm. you know, the surrender, you overdo the devotion. You don't really see that so much, you know, in people who understand what the role of the guru is. It's not part of our culture. We don't understand it. Many of us have overdone it. And that's, um, so I think here, and I've said this before, and, um, and I believe it strongly, is that the, a good model for teacher-student relationship here is that of a spiritual friend. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, to, and, and friends are good because they can tell you if you're like going in the wrong direction, they can give you honest feedback. And, you know, it, it, if everything is done nicely, then you don't come to blows and, you know, you don't destroy your friendship. You're appreciative of the growth oriented thing. And you might be able to give them feedback about stuff too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I think that the spiritual friend is a nice model for us here until we evolve some more. Maybe one day the guru shisha tradition will be, um, uh, a, a, a possible thing for Western or American culture right now. I don't think it is. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's better left to the pros in India and here, <laughs> You should try to do something different. Um, And I think a lot of Western yoga teachers, um, either consciously or unconsciously, have tried to take on the guru role. Mm. And and we shouldn't be. None of us should be. We don't know it. We don't know it. Eddie, I just want to thank you for what you said. It was was very friendly and I think um, extremely generous, maybe far too generous for you to say. um, Uh. And I, I appreciate what you said. I feel very much, um, as you were saying that to me and addressing it to me about the Joyce Foundation, I, I, I felt like a perfect mirror um, because for me, I was, I'm, I was very opportunistic in that uh, foundation. You know, I, I knew nothing about teaching kids yoga. And you and bent on learning had already been established before the the, the creation of of uh, the foundation. I think actually, um, when we created it, the first thing that I did was I reached out to uh, Barbara and said, "What do I do? Because I have no idea how to do this." And um, but you know what happened for me is that I you know I had a transference of guru energy. From Patabi Joyce onto the the guy that we were working with, Gene Ruffin, and treated him like my own personal Buddha. I hung on his every word. I you know worshipped him, dropped everything for any kind of contact with him. 
and I thought he was a um, uh, a person that could do no wrong. And I think slowly, you know, as uh, as the relationship between the foundation and bent on learning kind of thawed, uh, I think Gene started to realize just how incredible you, you were for our work and how and how much you brought to it. And and uh, I started to get in, incredibly jealous. And um, I also I want to apologize to you for that resentment and for that um, that lack of care that I brought to our friendship. And I I've said some things that um, I regret and that bitter things that were, I think was unfair to your relationship with Jean. And um, it all came down to, for me, being really very competitive and feeling that I was, you know, I was not as important anymore. And um, so that, that, uh, that also ended my relationship with Jean, that, that competition and resentment. And uh, we did not leave on good terms. And when he passed, we were not on good terms, which I deeply regret. Well, number one, apology accepted. Um, thank you for that. And number two, do you guys do this on all your podcasts? <laughs> it's, it, it really gets good ratings, which is why we do this. It's like the Barbara Walters <laughs> moment. <laughs> Um, but um, I, you know, and I, I'm, I'm sure anything that you might have said that was was probably well deserved on my part. And um, you know, um, the um, Gene was a was a really awesome person, and I'm sorry that you guys um, didn't leave on good terms with each other. And um, I'm sure that he didn't hold bitterness in his heart towards you at all. Um, you know, his death was just like a great loss for yeah. so many of us. Um, he was really a um, uh, he was really a good person, you know? and so so uh, he was he was wise and practical. You know, he carried his wisdom like he wasn't going to waste time in the real world. His stuff was, you know, he's like that's just a waste of time. I'm yeah. not going to bother. Where yeah. you know. We like hang on to stuff and try to fix it all the time. And he's like, ain't no fixing this. Right. <laughs> Moving on. Yeah. And um, I would have liked to have more time with Gene for sure. Definitely. Yeah. He, was a, he was a visionary. Um, so this is the, um, this is the cycle of life, right? You know, we do, we, we do terrible things to each other and then hopefully we get to the point where we can forgive ourselves and forgive each other and grow from it and, you know, repair stuff. And I think that's a lot of what our entire spiritual journey is. I mean, within Judaism, the whole thing is repair the world. The world is, is fractured. It's broken into an infinite amount of fractured rays of lights that we need to bring together and, Maybe now, you know, Russell, here we are, like, you know, bringing together our, our little bit of fixing the broken mirror. Yeah. Um, and I'm really happy for that. So, mm. and, uh, you know, we, uh, in my Sanskrit class on Monday, 
I have with another teacher in India, part of my whole, you know, learning thing. Um, we were talking, he was teaching me a mantra from the Taitiriya Aranyaka, and um, it had to do with um, the removal of Papa, often translated as sin, which really means imperfections or um, the way, you know, we do things wrong or wrong actions. Um, the I can't remember all the, I have to look in my notes for all the different words we use for it, but can look at them as imperfections and stuff like that. And to remove the, the raja, the raja, the dust, which is covering our consciousness. And um, he said, um, you know, I asked him a question about those two words and he said, well, you know, we don't have a choice but to be imperfect because the world and the creation is imperfect. Otherwise it wouldn't have been created. So we live in an imperfect creation and therefore, we have that imperfection in us. And the, he said the whole point of yoga is to see what's underneath the imperfection and then become more solid with that, become more unified with that. And um, so as hard as I am on myself about the, the things that I've done wrong or, you know, you know, attitudes I displayed towards you, Russell, and things and, and other people um on the one hand i can go well i didn't have a choice because i'm part of an imperfect universe <laughs> <laughs> and then part of it is actually but but that witness aspect of myself that has sovereignty over my actions in the future that's what i can activate you know? yeah. i can activate that now from from painful learning experience so so yeah i don't know i love i love i just wanted to go back this was such a beautiful moment <laughs> thanks guys <laughs> but i i love that idea too of like spiritual friendship and and being that spiritual friend and and having you know creating the space to have like conversation and and um, and guidance from someone and and your description sort of of what's how you're teaching now and in your room um you know i think it's i mean you have so much wisdom and like experience in the asanas and with different types of asana and you know neuroscience and breathing and all of it that you can really like bring all of that into the room and into the teaching when you're teaching one-on-one -on -one with students, which is amazing. Very, very fortunate students. <laughs> but, you know, it's, I think some of the rigidity of the Ashtanga, um, you know, we'll just say sort of system or method or sort of the, that approach that, that gets portrayed in like a Mysore room rather than a, a self, um, you know, practice kind of space is, often because maybe as like a young teacher you don't really have that experience to draw upon or that wisdom and you don't really know what is good for someone <laughs> and so you fall back on this sort of rigid pattern rigid kind of system that you've been instructed in well yeah i, I let me just interrupt for one moment um before we get in to that discussion. Mm. Russell, anything else you want to say on our topic that we were just talking before we go forward? <laughs> Are you good? I'm good. 
I'm good too. Okay. Anything really mean that you ever said about me, I'm okay with. I promise <laughs> you that. And I and it doesn't bother me. If you call me a fucking piece of shit motherfucker who should never have even set face on this earth because every word out of his mouth is an absolute pile of horse manure, I'm okay with that. And you're probably right. <laughs> I um, I never I never called you a kike. I just want you to know that. <laughs> well, I feel so much better. <laughs> just one line too far. Yeah, I know that would be too far. It's, I don't I don't I'm not a self hating Jew. I mean, maybe I am. I, don't know. I was just worried you were about to come the next Joe Rogan here, but. <laughs> <laughs> um, so and so yes like what you're trained in and how you're trained is what you're going to teach and it's that's why if you're going to become a doctor you have a lot of years of training and you have a lot of oversight and you certainly don't have room to think for yourself as a doctor right. you know you're like this is what you do and you better be quick on your feet and take all your learning to do the right thing and not kill people. Yeah. Um, And so there's a tremendous amount of training and in the yoga world and especially in the world of 200 hour trainings and authorizations and stuff like that. And, you know, the training is, hold on one second, um, is compromised. Mm -hmm. Um, And if your training is only one type of training, you know, where, uh, I didn't realize we were going to be um, talking for so long, and I'm not ending our conversation. I'm just telling the person I was supposed to meet at 4.30 that I'm running late. Okay. <laughs> we're, we're just about ready to do the intro. Cool. <laughs> uh, and um, so um, the um, so whatever your experience is of your training, say in my sort, if that's the only thing you learn, that's what you're going to teach. Mm-hmm. So if your training was being yelled at, um, being, you know, told the, the not correct method, not correct method, you know, oh, you have pain, you're not breathing correctly. If this is what you're told all the time, then that's what you're going to end up teaching. So, yes, 100 percent. It's all in the training. And um, and so then if you decide at a certain point you didn't like that training, and it's not serving the people who come to you, then train yourself differently. Yeah. Wow. Do some new training. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, good news. person I was supposed to meet also is running. A little bit. <laughs> Welcome All to Manhattan right. Life. <laughs> it's a confluence of, of, of amazing synchronicities and blessing. Yes. Uh, I want to do the intro. Do I have, do I have time to, 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 Ask, name drop name drop do i have that do i have a minute do have... yeah do it, do it. okay one were you there and did this actually happen was joan jett ever in mysore doing ashtanga yoga yes she was i was not there she was a student of she was a student of sharon and david oh, uh, from Jesus. And, um, she went to mysore with sharon and david wow wow and was that your first trip to mysore was with sharon and david i brought them you brought them Oh, yeah. that's not how I heard it. Okay, yeah. That's not how they tell <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. You were... Uh... I was the catalyst. Okay. Amazing. Wow. All right. Um... Me, 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 me. What? what was it that... <laughs> 
what drew you there, though? You had met Patabi Joyce earlier, or you just heard about him? I had met him earlier. Okay. Okay. All right. Yeah. So one of um, the very first concert I ever went to in Kansas City in 1988 was Lou Reed on the New York tour. Awesome. Hugely impactful event. Um, the the my brother's uh, like first love was a poster of Laurie Anderson. He never really got over it. Uh, really, I really big impact on my life. Uh, we just had a friend of yours, a friend, mutual friend, Jeff Lewis, in our house. He discovered my uh, "I'll Be Your Mirror" cover album in my in my in my studio. Huge guy for me. You were teaching Lou Reed Ashtanga yoga as he was dying. Is that right? I was teaching him yoga as he was dying. That's amazing. Yeah. Wow. I taught him for a couple of years. Um, wow. So before he got sick, I was teaching him every Tuesday. Uh, I would go to his house. And um, the, that was the day he didn't do Tai Chi. And um, he was um, a really amazingly sweet, loving, um, soft-hearted human being mm. who also could get extremely angry very quickly <laughs> yeah, and then come down from it. Um, and um, uh, I met him through Julian Schnabel, actually. Okay. Oh, wow, yeah. Um, I, the first time I met him was, um, I mean, I'd seen him around the streets of New York a lot, but um, uh, Jocelyn and I went to Julian's, I think it was his 60th birthday. Um, no, it was... It was before that. It was probably his um, 55th or something like that because he just turned 70. We'd known each other 15 years. So, um, And Jocelyn was sitting next to Lou Reed, and she had no idea at all who he was. <laughs> That's amazing. And she said, oh, you know, Jocelyn. He said, oh, you're French. And she said, yeah. So they talked about France and cheese and stuff like that, like all night long. Jesus. And, um, <laughs> And uh, after the dinner, we left. I said, do you know who you're sitting next to? She said, no, who? I said, you were sitting next to Lou Reed. And she went, oh, Jezebel. So it was just very, and I'm sure he was delighted sitting next to her um, because she, she had no idea who he was. Um, and um, I, um, and then um, when Julian did the Berlin show at St. Anne's Warehouse, um, he invited us to that and we went and afterwards, um, uh, you know, backstage afterwards or at the reception after he introduced me to Lou and said, this is my yoga teacher. Um, we should do some yoga with him. And we said, okay, yeah, you know, um, give me your number. And I was like, I'm never going to hear from this guy again. Right. Then I started going over there. And of course I was super intimidated in, in the beginning, yeah. but um, he just, you know, I would come in and he'd say, today I need to stretch and meditate and breathe. <laughs> and then we would do whatever we could do because his body was, you know, had some had some damage. Yeah. Um, car accidents and touring and all this stuff. Um, and then, um, yeah, the last time I saw him was about two weeks before he passed away. And, um, and Lori, um, who also became a friend, um, a, a dear friend, she was with Lou when he died in... Um, their place in the Hamptons and they were sitting on the beach and, you know, he, they were both devoted to Tai Chi and um, in his final moments, he was doing Tai Chi with his hands, like looking at the sun 
Um, oh. Passed away. Oh. Can you imagine? I know. Can you imagine? So beautiful. Yeah, so wow. beautiful. That's so emotional. Wow. <laughs> a good death. Mm. Yeah. That's death. Um, Amazing. So. Well, for yeah. those of our listeners who don't know who we're speaking to, we're it's speak- Lou Reed's yoga teacher. <laughs> it's Lou Reed's yoga teacher. His name is Edward Stern. Exactly. He's a fourth generation Manhattanite. Edwin Stern, by the way. Edwin. Oh. Edwin, yeah. Oh, yeah, I'm Edwin. Edwin Stern. Okay. Middle name? Some introduction. <laughs> Didn't even Edwin get your name Scott. right. Hmm? Edwin Scott. Edwin Scott. Scott. That's so goy. My God. I know. I'm telling you, it's, it's, it's like some introduction didn't even get his name right. And this was the thing Like, I don't know if you read Mark Singleton's book, Yoga Body, yes. which, you know, I have a lot of strong feelings about that book. And there's it's super problematic on many levels. But when I read it, the first thing that outraged me so much was that he spelled my name wrong. Dr. Krishnamacharya. He spelled my name S T E R N E. And I was like, Are you fucking kidding me? Can't you even fact check shit? Right. I mean, like, you can't even get my name right. Yeah. Google it. Yeah. If you can't get my name right, how can I trust anything in your book? Exactly. <laughs> I. I found it a profoundly racist Peace and love. Yeah, 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 let's go back to the peace and love. Uh, We're we're again in the confounding situation where our esteemed and universally recognized guest needs no introduction, but not introducing him would be quite rude. Which is why we're ending the podcast now. (laughs) (laughs) Seriously. It's 429. Yep. I have to leave my house in one minute. Yep. Okay. I'm going to say thank you very much. Uh, I had a, it was a pleasure talking to you both. Thank you for inviting me on. Uh, thank you for uh, allowing us to have our very public healing, um, which is beautiful. I look forward to our newfound friendship. Going forward. And send you guys lots of love. And uh, hopefully I haven't said anything to you anyone or hurt anyone else's feelings on this podcast well we Lots. hope to come visit your new broom street temple and the new come old visit. yes Lots we would of love, love to Eddie. catch up in person catch you guys later okay. okay bye we are again in the confounding situation i should just go where i, I left off yeah yeah all right all right so we are in the confounding situation where our esteemed and universally recognized guest needed in the past tense you said yeah like long time back when we recorded this yeah uh he needed no introduction still doesn't still really doesn't do we have to do this (laughs) carry on (laughs) but but not introducing him would be quite rude get his name right this time okay Edward. Edwin. Edwin. Our guest today is synonymous with New York City and Ashtanga Yoga. He is the founder of Namarupa Magazine. He recently released his first solo book, One Simple Thing, A New Look at the Science of Yoga, which examines in clear and simple language the underlying neurophysiological mechanisms that make yoga an effective practice. It's a lovely book. Edwin Scott Stern. That's right. Is the co-founder of the International Yoga, and it's really goy. It's like this whole episode is is about Purim and Passover. We already did that part. Okay, the science 
<clears throat> oh, it's yoga. Inter He's the co-founder of the International Yoga and Science Conference. Yeah. And most recently created the Breathing app. Yeah, that's a lovely app also. It guides the user in a placid, oh, excuse me, paced breathing exercise that balances the nervous system to create placidity. Are you obsessed with placidity for some reason? Which uh, the breathing app guides the user in a paced breathing exercise that balances the nervous system, helping to improve sleep and reduce stress and anxiety. <clears throat> anxiety that sounds about right the list goes on but we are running out of time to actually do the interview but that's in the past we already ran way out of time we're over time we couldn't do the interview the the intro in the interview it's all it's backwards we just did the whole thing backwards it says here dear eddie where in the world are you today I think the last time we saw each other was at Brooklyn. It was in Brooklyn at Sherratt's last tour stop. So that, that's how the conversation was supposed to yeah, start. Yeah, and that was 2019, actually, oh, it was before 2000, COVID. 2018, I thought. No, 19, before COVID. We heard COVID. that you were starting your shala up again in Manhattan. Congratulations. Yeah, did. Yeah, everyone can go to Manhattan now and practice in person. I remember vividly moving to New York September 1st, 2001. Okay, that's enough of the introduction. <laughs> David Swenson's Thanks for listening, everyone. We hope that you have a great, great Stern. week. We love so you. So I actually got a yellow Thanks. pages and through it looking for your phone number. Thanks for listening to this episode of Finding Harmony. With me, your host, Harmony Slater. You can find out more information on my website, harmonyslater.com. And I look forward to connecting with you again soon. Standing in eternity's shadow, watching the breaking waves, there's a hard wind and the soil.